you ever have something where you learn something that you probably should have noticed a long time before, but for some reason it just kind of, just right by you, right? Um, one of my favorite little pictures, and I, I've, I've used it before, um, is a little meme. A meme is just a graphic online that people share. And it says, don't say I didn't learn that in school. You were talking when the teacher said it. I thought, that's pretty apt. That's probably my life story right there. But the other day, I was talking to my son, Kyle. He is a freshman. He's uh, 14 years old. And he was talking to me about government. And uh, he started saying, hey, Dad, we're learning about the three branches of government. And I was like, ooh, yeah, this is in my wheelhouse. I used to teach government to high school seniors for like 16 years. So I'm like, yeah, let's go. And he goes, Dad, have you ever noticed that the three rings, the three uh, branches of government are like the Trinity? And I went, that's, that's a new one for me. I, I, it's three and three. I get that. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, no, no, listen. And then he just like blew some knowledge into my brain that I had never got before. And he goes, Congress makes the law just like God makes the law. Like, okay, one for one, let's go. And he goes, the president, right? The president is one person who represents all the people. It's like, Jesus. Like, okay, two for two, let's go. And he goes, and then the judiciary, the Supreme Court, they tell us how to interpret the law and understand the law when it's not speaking specifically to that thing. And I went, wow, oh my goodness. And I went, now, okay, now we're not going to make any equivocations between God, the Bible, and perfection of our government. That's not what the point of this is. But our founding fathers were, were believers, and I can't help but wonder if maybe that had come in. I know for me, it was like, boom, a light went off, and I went, if I ever get the opportunity to teach this again, I'm going to drop my water bottle. Um, anyway, I'm going uh, to teach this, and I'm going to use it as an opportunity to teach about God as I'm teaching about our government. And I was like, wow, it totally changed the way I would do it. And my 14-year-old enlightened me on something I didn't see. And I think that's very awesome. So today what I want to do is I want to take you to these pas this passage that, that Lee and Sarah just read for us. And it's one that we've seen over and over again. It's part of Zechariah's song. It's not as famous as Mary's song, the Magnificat, but it is still a very, very familiar song. And I want to show you something that I think we've all missed. Okay, so bear with me because we're going to get to that in a second. But first, I got to tell you a little bit about where we're at in the Bible. Okay, so if you haven't already, turn to Luke chapter 1. You know, one of the things authors like to do is they like to leave you with something to think about. So you have like their words ringing in your ears. Good authors do this, right? They, they finish their book and it's like the last thing gets you and it leaves you thinking about it. Well, the end of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi, this prophecy that Malachi had, there was one promise at the very end that the author means for us to have ringing in our ears, and which would have been ringing in Zechariah's ears. And it's from Malachi 4.2. And this is the promise. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Love that. That's the promise at the end of Malachi. And then for 400 years, the nation of Israel does not hear from God. 400 years of darkness, 400 years of oppression, 400 years of being conquered over and over again. 
No word from God, but they have this promise. And this promise is ringing in their ears that there is going to be one that comes who will be like the Son, and he will be righteous in that he is holy and does right. And this healing in his wings, this promise of health. So this is what is ringing in the ears of all of Israel. And then where we find ourselves in the story is Zechariah. He's a priest. He's going to be the father of John the Baptist. His wife's name's Elizabeth. He's serving in the temple. He's lighting the incense in the temple. And an angel appears. The angel Gabriel appears to him, a spiritual messenger. And he says, Zechariah, your wife is going to have a baby, a boy. Zechariah goes, wait a second. She's never had a kid. She's well past the age of having kids. How is this going to happen? And Gabriel goes, I'm saying it because God told me, you better listen. And so to get that point pushed home for Zechariah, Zechariah is not able to talk for the entire pregnancy, okay? I don't know if that was an answer to prayer for Elizabeth or not, <laughs> but it happened. So then he is born, the, the baby is born, this baby whose name is going to be John the Baptizer, the John, the Elijah, the one paving the way for Jesus. And Zechariah's tongue is loosened. Look what it says in verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosened, loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. So what was this he spoke? Well, this is what we're talking about today. He spoke the words the Holy Spirit gave him. Verse 67, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Prophesying doesn't mean predict the future. It means speaking truth. Sometimes it is the future, but it's always true. And so today we're going to focus on the last two lines of the song. Verse 76, and you, child, this is John the Baptist he's talking about here, will be called the prophet of the Most High. That would be God. For you, John the Baptist, will go before the Lord, Jesus, to prepare Jesus' ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. See, Zechariah's song starts with this big picture of here's how God has cared for Israel all of this time. And he has moved into, oh my goodness, my son has been added to that line of God's prophets. See, God has unlimited power, but he chooses to work through frail humans, including helpless babies. So don't minimize what God can do through us being faithful to him. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So verse 78 says, because, so he's telling us the reason why he has sent Jesus, the reason why he sent the Lord. It says, because of his tender mercy. This mercy is God, who is king, meeting us in our desperation, meeting us in our unworthiness. Like we sang in the song, a weary world. He meets us as a weary world. Tender mercy. This is God's loyal love. This is God's steadfast love. This is a phrase that should stir up all sorts of joy in us. Let's, let's examine it for a sec. The word mercy is the word elios, which means to get something, you, to not get what you deserve. Grace and mercy are very similar. But mercy is to not get what you deserve. And this word tender is the Greek word splachna. I love that word. Well, it's not a very beautiful word. It means your bowels. 
It means your guts. And so what it's saying is, is that it's saying deep down inside of God, at his innermost being, he feels mercy for us. He feels mercy towards us. It's the very nature of God. When the Bible authors, when they use that word spalachna, they're not saying it's down where our food digests, but what they're saying is it is the most internal part of us. That's where the mercy comes from. So God's mercy is deep-seated. It's not a concession. God didn't go, oh, I guess I'll have mercy on them. No, this is who God is. Mercy is what he is. It's who he is. And this is what John the Baptist is going to point us to. He's going to point us to Jesus coming. Our Redeemer lives. Our Redeemer comes with forgiveness. See, the thing about it is, is we need to understand mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's a free gift. It's not something we can earn. There has never been a person who's lived on this earth who is good enough to earn God's mercy. Mercy is the key. Mercy is what Christmas is all about. Mercy is what it's all about. The next phrase we see is he, he says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. And then he says he'll give light to those who sit in darkness, those who sit in the shadow of death. We see this picture here of kind of a, a cosmic battle between light and dark and God's redemptive light. The Bible lets us know who the light is. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then it says, and will guide us in a way of peace. Now, this is not world peace, even though that's something that we should all hope for. But this is peace between us and our Savior. It ties back to that idea of salvation and forgiveness of sins. So this entire thing is a prophecy for Jesus. This is what Jesus is going to do. So that right there, that's the passage. And right in the middle of that is this idea of the, the sunrise the sunrise shall visit us. In the New King James and the King James Bible, it says day spring. As a matter of fact, we sing about this in some of our Christmas songs, don't we? So I got off on this topic of the day spring. Now, how did I get there? Well, I was, I was at home with my kids, and we have an advent calendar. One of our dear friends, Beth, made it for us. And it's a stick. It's this, like, I don't know, birch stick that goes like this. And then it has these, these ropes that have little ornaments. And the ornaments are, are flat, but they look like ball ornaments, right? And on one side, it says a name of God. And on the other side, it says a passage. And so each day, we uncover one of the ornaments, and we read about a name of Jesus. We read about one of his names. So the other day, we were reading, and we came across Dayspring. So I pull out my Bible, my, my phone Bible, and I look it up. It says Luke 1, 78. I look it up, and it's not there. And I went, huh, that's weird. What word is it? So I kind of do my little Greek search, and I find and it, the word dayspring is not there, but it's the word dawn, right, or sunrise. And, and I look at it, and it's not capitalized. So I'm going, wait a second. Something's not right here. Well, this, this is supposed to be a name of Jesus. How, how is it not in our Bible? So I started digging into this a little bit, and I was like, well, is this really a name? I'm like, do we need to like remove one of our um, Advent options and put something else up there? There's plenty of names. You know, you got Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. We got lots of names for Jesus. So I started digging into this. Some commentators were like, oh yeah, it's just, it's just the word sunrise. No big deal. It doesn't really mean anything. Others were like, yeah, it's, you know, the whole light and dark thing. But I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure that that's, that was right. So I kept digging 
And oh my gosh, I was in for a ride. This has honestly been one of the most enlightening times, not, I didn't mean that pun, but it's one of the most enlightening times I've had in studying God's Word. Because something finally clicked with this term dayspring. And something just, just exploded and I went, oh my gosh, how did I miss this? And so I want to show you guys this big click. I want, I want you to see it. I want you to see how this word dayspring is tied to a major theme in the Bible that we may miss. So what we're doing today is called a biblical theology. What that means is we take all of the Bible and what it says about a specific topic and we put it all in this big pile and we go, what does it mean for us today? So today we're going to do that. Now why are we doing that? Well first, the Bible has no coincidences in it. It's 66 books, it's written by the Holy Spirit through human authors, probably about 40 of them. The thing about it is, is that there's nothing in it that's there on accident. Every single part of it works together. And the thing that's amazing is, yes, we get the main structure, right? Our kids in our Bible studies can get the main structure. But as we dig deeper and deeper into it, the Bible self-authenticates. It lets us know that it's a supernatural book when we see things that go, these guys wrote 1,500 years apart on different continents and different languages, and yet, what? How does that work? It's amazing how it all comes together. The second thing, I think the reason why we need to look at this, is so that we can have confidence. When we see this bigger picture, God wasn't scrambling in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, he went, oh, my plans are messed up, i got to figure something out. No, he had a plan for the entire time. There is nothing that surprises God. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that he does is he gives us and Israel a daily reminder of his son, of the coming of Jesus. And I want to show that to you. So, we all know the sun rises in the east. The day spring, by definition, is the first glimmer of light, when the light just goes over the top. One day I was driving um, up to Vancouver and I was in seminary, and I caught the angle just right so that Mount Hood was blocking the sun, and it just kind of came up there on that right side there, on the, I don't know, the south side of it, and just kind of broke through. It was so amazing, because then this black, you know, pointy thing all of a sudden becomes white, and you could see the mountain. It was so beautiful. But this bright light chases away the dark, doesn't it? The springs up. This is what Jesus is called. And this is the theme of the Bible I want us to look at. And the theme is this. Hope comes from the East. The East is a place of blessing. The East is a place of God's presence in the Bible. And so this is what I've discovered. So let me show you this. We're going to start with creation. So the very first thing that God creates is light. And he says, it is good. So literally the very first thing he does is he makes light appear. It springs up. The day has sprung. The light has appeared. This is the Lord saying, this is what I am. This is who I am. In the Bible, we see that God is symbolized by light. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Isaiah 9, 2, the people walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them the light has shone. 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine. For you are my lamp, O Lord. My God lightens my darkness. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my lamp and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? We see that the Bible also talks about sunrises representing God. 
Psalm 84:11, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. 2 Samuel 23, 4, he, God, dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on the cloud this morning. Amos 5, 8, he who made the Pleiades and Orion constellations turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls the waters of the sea and pours them on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. This idea of, of God shining is throughout. Here's my favorite one, number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious. So conversely, we see in the Bible when the sun darkens, it represents what? It represents judgment. Acts 2.20. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. That means the judgment day, that great, magnificent, great and magnificent day. See, whenever the Lord darkens the sun, he, he uncreates it, in, a, in essence. He's saying, I'm taking away my presence, and the darkness rules. And we, we miss this because we live in a, a culture where everything is well lit. When you fly anywhere and you fly into a city, yeah, there are those orange kind of weird lights, but everything's well lit. You go into the mountains and you're driving in the middle of the night, you'd stop and turn your lights off. It's pitch black, save for any stars that might be out. That's the world they lived in. We live in a world with so much light. And so this idea of being deprived of the sun is terrifying. So we see God made the light because he is the light. And his light represents and means life, security, hope. Whereas lack of life, lack of light means judgment and fear. Okay, so we've got God created it. He made the first sunrise. What does this have to do with east? Well, let me show you some more. Genesis chapter 2, God makes a garden in Eden. I say that on purpose, not the garden of Eden, because when you read the passage, it says, God made a place called Eden, and in the east of it, he made a garden. So on the east side of a land called Eden, he plants a garden. Look at Acts 2.8. The Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So this idea of God placing man in this eastern garden as a place of blessing. Why? Because that's where the Lord is going to be. If you remember your, your Genesis account, the Lord walked with them there. The Lord met them there. They were tabernacling. They were tenting. They were living with God in close proximity. This is where God intends to pour out his blessing, in the east of Eden, in the garden. Okay, also on a side note. And maybe this will lead some of you on a little adventure as well. I was reading in the Bible about Eden. Did you know that Eden was on top of a mountain? Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 through 16. There's a nice little bunny trail. You can start doing a study on your own about mountains in the Bible because that's a pretty amazing study. But Eden, right, it's the eastern portion of Eden. Now, what is the point of this? Well, the eastern portion is the point that gets the sun first. That gets that representation daily of God's blessing because the sun brings life. The sun brings security. And so the sun rising and hitting the east of Eden first is a daily reminder that God's presence is like that. Now when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, where does it say that God sent them? Sent them out the east. So even in God's judgment on them, he kicks them out and he still sends them east and puts them on the east side of the garden so they still receive the sun first and they can say, yes, God, we miss out. We're not in Eden anymore. The sun hits us, but it's, 
It's not the son of being in Eden. If you remember, the garden is blocked off by cherubim, these angels with flaming swords. That'll be important because we'll come back to that in a minute. And it says, there is no other way to enter Eden except from by the east. Now, why did God do this? We just messed up. It was one sin, right? Why did Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden for that one sin? Well, what's in the middle of the Garden of Eden? It's the tree of life. And this tree of life provides us with the ability to live forever if we eat from it. And so God in his mercy says, you are now full-on sinners. I can't have you live forever in your sin. Can you imagine all the trouble we could get into if we could live forever? I mean, we mess up in, you know, 100 years or less. Imagine if we could live 1,000 or 10,000. So God in his mercy says, I'm not going to let you stay in your sins. Now, some of you are Bible scholars, and you're going, okay, wait a sec. All right, Pastor John, you've done a pretty good job here, but there's a bunch of times in the Bible where people go to the east, and it's a bad thing. They leave and go to the east. An example of this would be um, when Cain gets kicked out of Adam and Eve's family. It says he cast him out to the east. So Cain gets to be closer to God? Not exactly. Babylon, which is built from where Babel was, they built it in the east. And Lot, when Lot sees the promised land, he goes, I'm going to settle in the east. So here's the deal. Doesn't that look like east is not a good thing? Because I mean, we really aren't going to say that Babel and Babylon and Cain and Lot and all these others are doing the right thing because they're in the east. So we all need to move east. That's not the point. Instead, the point is here, is that whenever man on his own tries to reach to God by going east, he fails. See, the thing is, after the Garden of Eden, after our time of being perfect and not sinful, when we could be in God's presence, after that moment, there is no way for us that we can go east as long as we can possibly do it. We will never reach God on our own. From the moment sin entered the world, there is no way for us to reach God. And so all of these people in the Bible that go east, yes, they're trying to get, they're, they're, they're thinking back to, yes, the blessing was in the east, but they're trying to attain it on their own. Unless God provides the means, unless God comes west, he will not meet us no matter how far we go. Yahweh's presence always brought gracious gifts, but it also brings judgment as well. And so God coming to us and providing for us to meet him is the only way we will meet him. By going east, we don't get there. So everything in the Bible is pointing east in this anticipation that that's the direction that God is going to come from. We see this all sorts of places, but let me show you another one. Let's talk about wind for a minute. In Israel, the predominant wind is west. 365 days out of the year, you're going to get a west wind or no wind at all. Occasionally, there will be an east wind, and this is a bad thing. An east wind in Israel is usually catastrophic. Usually, it's, it's, it's like a hurricane force wind. It's called a sirocco. It's a wind that is known for blistering heat, as in it brings the heat of the sun and the Israelites knew this, and the Israelites saw that the east wind is usually bad. Why? Because it comes from the Lord. Let me show you examples of this in the Bible. 
Exodus chapter 10. Moses stretched out his staff. So he, the, the, the Israelites are in Egypt and we're going through the different plagues. Moses stretches out his staff and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts, those locusts that would destroy and eat everything. Now, the east wind is not always bad, just like if God's coming is not always bad. For those of us who know him, who belong to him, who are of his chosen people, it's not always bad when the east wind blows. Look at the Red Sea. Exodus 14, verse 21. This is when the Israelites are, are pinned in. The Egyptians are behind them. The Red Sea's in front of them. And God says, watch this. Moses stretches out his hand, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind and made the sea dry and the waters were divided. See, again, the Lord's power for those who are with him and know him, him coming from the east is a blessing. Him coming from the east is amazement. For those who it's not, it's terrifying. So we see even more examples of this. Numbers 11, verse 31. Remember that the, the Israelites are wandering around the Sinai Peninsula and they're, 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 they're longing to go back to slavery. So God sends manna which is this bread-like stuff that they could make into loaves every morning. And they're saying, this is great, it's high in carbs, you know, what, what about some protein, Lord? And the Lord goes, okay, I'm going to send you some protein. Numbers 11:31. then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side around the camp about two cubits above the ground. He gave them more quail than they knew what to do with. They were done with the quail. It says it blew from the sea. The only sea where they were is to the east. Again, the Lord's blessing from the east. Psalm 78 actually references this as well. You can look at it on your own, verses 25 through 28, where he talks about the wind again. Isaiah References this as well, Isaiah 59. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and the glory of the rising sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. The rising sun is in the east. The wind comes from the east. And Isaiah gives us another picture too, and I love this. Verse, chapter 63. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? That's the Red Sea. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go to the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? So that spirit, that, that east wind is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the one who drove the wind out. And this is awesome. The Greek word for spirit is the word wind. So every time when we're reading about the Holy Spirit, it's a great wind. And remember, when the apostles are together in Acts and the Holy Spirit first descends, they hear a rushing wind. The Lord loves to show us all of this. Okay, let's keep going. The tabernacle, we need to talk about the tabernacle. So the Israelites, when they were in the garden, or we'll go back and forth, Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're meeting with God regularly. They're in God's presence. And then because of sin, we are separate from God. God knows that we need help. We need to have that connection to him. So as the Israelites are wandering, they make a tent called a tabernacle. 
This tabernacle is a rectangular-shaped building. And inside of it, you can go put the picture up there, Trevor, if you want. Inside of it, you're going to see multiple chambers. So there would be an outside, and then you have this inside, and then the Holy of Holies. Yes, it's the Ark of the Covenant there. And you see the, the curtain. We'll talk about these here in just a second. This was a place for people to come and meet with God. The inside of it is designed like the Garden of Eden. You've got the lampstand, which has flowers on vines. On the curtains, you would see different depictions of what a garden could look like. And then on that curtain, you have cherubim with flaming swords, reminding us of what we had in Eden. Even more amazing than that is the Lord says, and this is, you know, when you do your Bible readings every year and you get to the, the, the multiple chapters on the tabernacle and you go, why am I reading this? Well, let me help you. This is to remind them of where they came from. One of the key aspects is that this tabernacle must face directly east so that when the sun rises, the sun's beams hit right on that front door and point the way right back to the Lord. The Lord's presence would come and be in the Holy of Holies. One author writes that the tabernacle is like a mini Eden. So this is, this is the place where God's going to meet with man. Now, once a year, the high priest would go in there and he would sprinkle blood onto the Ark of the Covenant to take away the sins of the people. This was the, the way that God was pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do. Not only that, but where this tabernacle was seated in the encampment was right in the dead center. Israel, which is the name of God's chosen people, was also the name that God gave Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. These became the 12 tribes, kind of, through um, which all Jewish people find their heritage. When the Jewish people would camp around the tabernacle... They would put one tribe on the east. And you'd probably go, well, I expect it's probably the priests, right? The Levites. Actually, no. The tribe that was on the east was the tribe of Judah. Now, why the tribe of Judah? Why would the tribe of Judah get the east, which is the place of most reverence, which is the place of the anticipation of the coming one? Why? Because the prophecies say that one from the line of David, one from the line of Judah, will be the king. And so Judah gets that special place right there. Listen to what Jeremiah 23 says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So the tribe of Judah is the one closest to the sun, the one closest to the tabernacle. Why? Because we're anticipating the true king, the Messiah, to come from the east through Judah and make it right with us in the Holy of Holies. Now what's interesting is when Jeremiah was translated into Greek, the word branch right there is translated as the same word as dayspring. Branch meaning a quick explosion, something that's up quickly out of the ground. But the Hebrew is more of a, of a, of a woody explosion. But either way, don't the priests get this right? When, 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 when the wise men show up and talk to Herod, 
Where, where is he going to be born? Oh, he's going to be born in the city of David. The city of David was full of people that were related to David. It's coming out of Judah. They got this. They understood this. So David makes the connection. The prophecies make the connection. This fitting of the people around the tabernacle makes the connection for us. Now we're going to go a little out of order here because I want, to, I want to talk about the Magi for a second. You know the Magi, they're from probably Persia, all right? They're, they're these astrologers. They've been looking to the skies for years and years and years. They probably learned about this from Daniel because Daniel was a Magi. So they're looking for the king of the Jews. Now let's look at what they say because there's something really important here. Matthew 2, verse 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now you look at it and you go, where are they? They're from the east. Well, they had to come from some direction. It could have been north, it could have been south, it could have been west. It's just a coincidence, right? Okay, we'll, we'll grant that coincidence. But there's something else in that passage that if we're not thinking, we'll miss. Look, it said, for when his star, when it, we saw his star when it rose. The NASB makes it a little clearer. I want you guys to see this. It says, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So get this, the magi who are looking around trying to figure out where this king is and where he's coming, they see a star rise in the east and that star begins pointing them in a direction and they begin following the star. In in verse 9 it says, after they heard the king, behold the star which they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it came to a stop over the place where the child was. So they were in the east. They say it rose. They followed it. They got to Jerusalem, and then they followed it to Bethlehem. Again, no coincidences here. Are you guys starting to see that this is all tying together? Well, let's put a bow on this. Also, I didn't mean that to be a pun. Um, Let's put a bow on this and hit the temple. So let me show you guys the temple. Go ahead and show that, Trevor. So this is Solomon's temple. What I want to point out to you here is that this inner area here, you can't really see it, maybe some of you can, but there are palm trees and vines and all sorts of garden-like materials here, right? We have the Holy of Holies here where the Ark of the Covenant and then two gigantic angels and then they have their, 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 not really a curtain, but similar to the curtain. Go to the next one there, Trevor. This is Herod's temple. You can see Herod was much more into making bigger things. Right, there's the curtain, the one that gets torn when Jesus says it is finished. You can see the vines and the branches here on the entryway into the temple. Again, bringing us that picture of it. So the temple, just like the tabernacle, the difference is the temple doesn't move. Tabernacle moved. Temple is there. It also faces east. And what's east of the temple is the east gate. The east gate is called the king's gate. It is the gate which the Messiah is predicted, thanks to Ezekiel, to come through. This gate was of so much importance that it had double the number of guards. And those guards were priests. And those priests were considered honored to guard that gate because they would be the first to see the Messiah when he showed up. Now, Here's where it gets even more crazy. This is the gate that Jesus goes through on Palm Sunday, 
right? So on Palm Sunday, Jesus shows up and he's walking through the gate. And what do people say? Here is the son of David, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Why? Because Jesus going through that on a donkey is saying, I am the Messiah. The day has sprung. The light is here. Jesus is announcing it. Matthew 21 says, immediately after he went through the gate, he entered the temple. He entered the temple area from the east. Later, when Jesus is arrested, he's arrested on the Mount of Olives, which is directly east of Jerusalem. This time, the king, the Messiah, is taken through the eastern gate in chains to go to his death. This king was coming to his city, just like had been foretold, just like had been anticipated. And we see this throughout. Luke makes it very clear. In Luke's gospel, Luke is dealing a lot with dawn and light, and there's no surprise that he would be the one that used the word dayspring. In Luke 23, when Jesus dies, he says the sun's light failed. It says there was darkness over the whole land, Luke 23. And then in Luke 24, he says, but at early dawn. The light is coming up again. The brightness is there. Then it says he meets the angels. The angels were in dazzling apparel. That word dazzling means lightning that lights up the whole sky. And remember, it said they were blindingly white. They were so bright. All of this points to the sun has risen. S-U-N and S-O-N. Then Jesus ascends up to heaven. So the story's over, right? Nothing about east anymore except for the rest of the Bible, all of the writers talk about light to dark, light to dark, over and over and over again. Look at how Jesus said it in Matthew 4. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus says in John 12, I have come into the, darkness, come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. When you come to Christ, you get a dayspring event. Like that moment of looking and seeing the sun just breaking over the horizon and the darkness flees. That's what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the conversion we were talking about last week. You know, light is more powerful even though darkness is more prevalent. John the Baptist's message was, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, repent. Now that word repent is a churchy word. It just simply means to go an opposite direction. So imagine it this way. We are facing death. Repentance is to turn and face life. We're facing the darkness to turn, and as we turn, it's a light dawning in us. The brighter the light shines compared to the darkness we've been in. Have your kids ever taken a flashlight on a nice dark time? Maybe you're camping and you, you ask them a question. What do they do? They shine the light in your eyes. Can't see. Or have you ever had it where you've been in bed and you have a nightlight or something or the kids leave the nightlight on in the bathroom and it's this little dinky light but it lights up so much you can't sleep? Or have you ever seen those spotlights, you know, that are telling you there's a sale or a movie premiere, and you're like, I wonder where that is. See, no matter how much darkness there is, light pierces it. 
This is why it's so amazing to see the changes in the Bible. Like we talked about Paul last week and how he did that 180 from one terrible person to being the one who wrote the most books in the Bible. Light pierces the darkness. So Zechariah, on this, this day when he's singing about his newly born son, he looks forward to the arrival of the Messiah and he says, it's like the sun. It's so bright. It's so powerful. It pushes away the darkness. It provides life and security and heat and hope. Because of God's tender mercy, because of who God is, God looked down and said, I'm going to fix this situation. So this heavenly light that bursts out of the stable in Bethlehem gives us hope. Hope that God keeps his promises. Hope that God has a plan as in control. Hope that God, good will triumph over evil. Hope that God loves us. He cares for us. He wants us to know his mercy. And hope that God will do whatever it takes to get a hold of us and give our life purpose and meaning. You know, people say, a new day dawns. We use that little phrase, which is kind of the idea of, well, tomorrow something different will happen. Anything can happen. And in actuality, a new day's dawning happened on that first Christmas. And we are living in the light of it today. Every single day, the Lord reminds us of this truth because every single day the sun rises. You can look at it differently now. As every morning when the sun rises, you can look at that and you can say, my Lord is risen. My Lord is not in the grave. My Lord is coming soon. How do I know? The sun rose today. Daily we get a reminder of that. It's not Christmas wishes that lead to this hope. It's not governmental plans. It's not material things. Instead, it's the Son of God has risen, and then he died, and he has risen again. So let me round it out with one more aha moment. The Bible talks about this day spring, but at the end of the Bible, it says something really interesting. Revelation, we get a picture of what the first moment of eternity looks like. Like, we can't even get our minds wrapped around forever and ever and ever. We can't do that. But John gets a glimpse. John gets to go forward in the future or God just shows him what it's going to look like, but he lets him see that the heaven and the earth are sandwiched together. There is no more distance. God comes and lives with us on this new earth. And listen to the words here. Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the, sun has no, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Its lamp is the Lamb. Its light will, the, by its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See what we see there is that in eternity with Christ, the sun isn't necessary anymore. Because there, there is no darkness. There is no darkness for the sun to pierce because darkness is destroyed. Darkness is gone. Evil is gone. Instead, we will have 
the light. What a promise. The same God that promised that there would be a son of righteousness with healings in his wings who sent Jesus as the day spring is coming yet again. See, our hope at Christmas is not in Christmas spirit. It's not in goodwill and singing certain songs and doing certain traditions or buying the perfect gift. Our hope in Christmas is only in Christ the dayspring because he brings with him when he comes back peace on earth. He brings with him when he comes back the death of evil. The dayspring does that. So tomorrow when you wake up and you see the sun, remember the promise that the Lord has come and he is coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these, these passages are just so spectacular. You tie everything together, Lord, and then you just make it so perfect that you remind us every day of your promise that you are coming soon, that you are coming again. When that sun rises each morning, you are saying, I'm coming soon, one day closer. And Lord, we, when, we re, when we turn to you, Lord, it's that own personal dayspring, and, and that just is such a great picture of what it means to follow you, of light just dawning in our lives. So Lord, I pray that this time of year that we would remember what it means to have the dayspring with us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.